We're doing things just a little bit different because our days are different, are they not? But we do want to welcome, because perchance we may have guests, and if you are our guest, we welcome you, and we promise you, you will hear good news from a God who cares in the midst of the hardest times in our lives. And so if you are our guest, we want you to take that welcome card, that connection card in your pew. You can fill that out. You can hand it to us on the way out. You can take it to the information center in the back. And we have a gift for you, and we are praying for you. Well, we're going to forego our greeting time. And we're going to uh, establish, uh, as long as we are meeting, and until we don't meet, uh, some protocols. So if you look in your bulletin at the coronavirus update, I want you to uh, have that in your hand. We're going to go over that just a little bit. But before we do, I want to read Psalm 91, verses 1 through 6. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. God is our refuge, and under his wings, I want you to look at these uh, uh, protocols and strategies that we have in place uh, for the future. Uh, Obviously, we're in a pandemic. I don't have the time, and you can Google all of that. We've looked at all of the important uh, websites. I have them there for you. The City of Kansas City, Missouri, the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services, as well as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And in light of that, here's what we're doing and what we've already done in anticipation of today. And understand that the situation is so fluid it changes by the hour. It changes by the day. It, 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 it just it will change. And, and I was even concerned as we printed this up, what will change by the time Sunday comes? And so what I'm giving to you is what we have in place and what we're anticipating, but I'm pretty sure things will change when and where I do not know. So number one, we've done elevated sanitation protocol. And so we've made every effort, and the supply chain is stressed, as you know, if you've tried to shop for hand sanitizer and all these things. But every room and every classroom and every area has that, and we will keep that as stocked and as much as we can. Uh, communion elements are ordered that will be individually packaged so that you're not having to put your hand into a a, a, a tray of, of, of bread and, and all of that, doorknobs, trash can, all of this sanitized, and we're asking you to do the same with, uh, with yourself, and that's the precautions. Take precautions. These are the procedures that we really should be doing in flu season all the time, and now it's even a greater, greater 
need of cough etiquette, hygiene, including not touching your face, which once you try not to, you will be amazed how often you do, and then washing your hands for at least 20 seconds. One way to do that is to sing happy birthday two times. The time it takes you to do that, you should still be washing your hands. Or as believers, you may want to sing the doxology. It takes you 20 seconds to sing, and you can be praising God as you wash your hands. And, uh, and then social distancing. I know some of us, we've already, you know, have, and, you know we're, we're Baptists and we're believers. I mean, how can you not together and not hug and shake hands? Well, we're going to. And so all, some of you have already tried to shake my hand, and I'm like, no, not doing that. Give the air high five, and uh, that's what we're doing. And so you can redo that, the precautions that are there. Now, uh, right now, obviously, we're meeting. What will, what will that mean for Sunday, uh, next Sunday? I just don't know. I don't know, and no one really does know. But these are the precautions that are in place if we do meet. And so what I'm encouraging you to do and what our leadership council and our lead pastor is asking us to do is to uh, be aware of our website, be aware of our Facebook page, uh, wearelifebridge.com. At We Are Life Bridge is all our social media, and the priority will be on Facebook and our website. Uh, after that, we'll look at Twitter and look at Instagram. But if you'll, if you'll like and follow the uh, Life Bridge Facebook page and check the website, you will have updated information, and we also will have articles there that give a Christian perspective and a gospel per- per- perspective to this pandemic so we can have a gospel-shaped response. Well, on the back page, prayer is of the utmost. It is the most practical and equally practical thing we can do. And you have that there. In a moment, I'm going to ask Todd to come. He'll begin with praise and repent, and then I will close with ask and yield. But I pray that you would pray. Pray for one another and pray especially for our leaders as we anticipate going forward what we may or may not be able to do. And then let me just end with this before we pray, and that is embrace a sound mind versus a fearful spirit. Listen, we do not panic as though God is not in control, and neither are we proud as if we are in control. And we take instead a wisdom perspective that takes common sense, sanctified common sense precautions while also understanding that God is in control. And so we are asking you as LifeBridge and as Christ followers to have a gospel-shaped response. Today's message will help you with that. That is faith-based and not fear-based. That is hope-filled and not worry-filled, and is love-acting rather than self-protecting, and one that is Christ-centered versus crisis-centered. And so as we go forward, you know, uh, be on our social media. We will keep you updated through email as well. And uh, let's look for gospel opportunities. Amen? Okay, God knew this was coming, and he's on his throne, and he's going to still be on his throne after this. But what we're asking is for healing 
for God to lift. Because you read your Old Testament, all of a sudden a lot of these passages become a lot more relevant about pandemics and about the threats and pestilence. You're like, oh, okay, I understand why that was a fear. And we can trust God. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And so I'm going to ask Todd to come. Let us unite our hearts and let us pray to the Lord, praising, repenting, lamenting, asking, and yielding. As the perfect Heavenly Father, we know that we are more than conquerors through you who loved us. Mm. We are sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor these things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of you, O God. Your love that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We praise you. Because you are our God. We praise you because you're a loving Heavenly Father. We praise you as the God of heaven, sitting in dominion and sovereignty above all things in heaven and earth. God, you alone are in control. You alone rule over all life and death. And we bow before you as our God, our Father, our King. You have established your throne in heaven, and your kingdom rules over all. We praise you as our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. For the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, the world around us is in turmoil. Many lives of comfort have been turned to anxiousness and sorrow. We look to a future that is confusing, it's unknown, and we pour out our concern, we pour out our anxiety, we pour out our sorrow to you, our God who is a God of comfort. But God, our, I, our hearts are hearts of idols. And in the midst of this, these idols have been so illuminated our fear and anger and worry, they show that, that we've looked to the government, we've looked to jobs, people, doctors, we've looked to experts and institutions to provide our security. We've looked to these things to provide the hope for our future. And God, we repent. You and you alone are our security. You and you alone are our fortress. You and you alone are worthy of our dependence and our hope. We confess and we ask for forgiveness in Jesus' name. Father, as we continue to pray, we now ask specifically, Lord, for our political leaders. We pray for our president, our Congress, our Senate. We pray for our governors who are, and even mayors uh, at every level, are having to deal with things, Lord, that they could not anticipate. They can prepare to a degree Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom from above that is pure and righteous and would bring healing and hope. We pray, Lord, and we know that the heart of the leader is in your hands. And so we pray that you would direct it in the direction that would be most glorifying and most saving to the greatest number of people. 
We pray for medical professionals. We pray for our public safety, our first responders, our educators who are on the front line, Lord, and who is really our, our, our earthly and human defense. And we pray for their protection. We pray, Lord, for wisdom. And we pray that you would keep them safe and strong. And, Lord, may they look to you and not to their own strength in carrying out their jobs. We pray for our pastors and our uh, leadership council, Lord, in the days and hours ahead. We have decisions to make, new information to process, thinking about the, the shepherding the sheep of this flock. I pray that you would grant wisdom, grace. I pray that we would uplift them in prayer. I pray, Lord, that we would... Uh, extend grace to them and understanding and sympathy and 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 uh, surrender our resources and our our surrender our 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 just our support in order to help at this time. We pray for our missionaries and one another. And Father, in all of this, we yield our lives to you as living sacrifices. For we enjoy as your people the mercies of you that have transformed our lives. And so we have resource, and we have a relationship, and we have the riches of your grace that many, many, many who are dealing with this do not have. And so, Lord, let us not be hoarders of your grace. Let us not be stockpiling the gospel. But, Lord, may, us look, may we look for opportunities to point people to the hope that is within us, the hope of you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand and take your Bibles as Dane leads us in today's scripture. Let us stand. Good morning, and while you're standing, if you'll turn your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 27 for today's scripture reading, Matthew 27. We'll be in verse 1, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 10. If you need a pew Bible in front of you, you can find today's reading on page 990. Matthew 27, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 10. Excuse me, follow along as I read. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter bought with them, excuse me, the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Father, we come 
And Lord, we just uh, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. Father, my prayer today would be that you just open our hearts, focus our hearts and our minds on your teaching this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 I am glad you are here this morning. And, uh, you know, we've joked in the past when uh, I've had, uh, had the privilege of uh, uh, filling in on uh, one of Pastor Bruce's series, and uh, it's often been uh, a problem passage. Uh, and that's not, that's just by chance, but it has uh, been a pattern. And so, you know, I get pandemic Sunday. So I'm excited here. Let's, uh, you know, he's kind of upping the game on me. And so uh, please pray for them. They were going to ski, but all the ski lifts are shut down. And so, uh, you know, things are changing. But what doesn't change is the Lord our God that we have worshipped. Well, times of crisis and tragedy, listen, they're nothing new. And how good of God to have us in this passage on this Sunday, okay? Because in this passage, we're going to see whether it's state of emergency or national emergency, pandemic, we're going to see that it's easy, it is easy to think God is silent or passive in the midst of tragedy. But here's what I want you to know. The triune God does his greatest work in the middle of and on the other side of individual and global crisis. I promise you, God does his greatest work in the middle of and on the other side of individual, whatever tragedy, whatever crisis, whatever worries you may have, and even a pandemic, we're going to see that God is doing and will do a great work through this. I find it fascinating, and the reason I say this is because I find it fascinating in the passage that Dane just read, that Jesus is never heard speaking, and he's never seen acting. He's acted upon and he's spoken about while he endures two great tragedies. That of betrayal by one of his 12 chosen disciples and being delivered up for execution by his own people. Does this mean that God was silent or passive in the midst of these tragedies? No, 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 a thousand times no. What it means is, The gospel was being fulfilled in and through these tragedies. And that's what I want you to get this morning. The gospel triumphs through tragedy. The gospel triumphs through tragedy. Now, I almost entitled this, The Gospel Triumphs Over Tragedy. And that's true. But here's what you need to ask. How does the gospel triumph? Over tragedy. And I would put forth to you the gospel always triumphs over tragedy by enabling you to go through tragedy. Isn't it fascinating that as Jesus quotes in these gospel accounts about his upcoming suffering, he says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. In Mark, he says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. In Luke 9:22 he says the son of man must suffer many things. And then Luke drives it home again and says first 
he must suffer many things. And then Jesus himself wraps it up in Luke 24. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Listen, this is how we too follow the gospel. According to Acts 14, 21 through 22, Paul preached the gospel in these cities and then he would return immediately and he would encourage them to continue in the faith saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So are you a Christ follower this morning? If you are, then through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And we are all facing... On a global scale, a tribulation, a threat, a tragedy that we don't know how great it's going to be, how much it's going to affect our country, how much it's going to affect our city, our church, and our lives. But understand this, God does his greatest work during and following great tragedies. Now this morning we're going to see two tragedies and one triumph. And as we made our way through Matthew 26 in the previous weeks, we saw how the word now indicates a shift or a progress in the passion of Christ. For instance, look in your Bibles at chapter 26, verse 59. Your passage begins with now, and it introduces Jesus in the courtroom facing false witnesses. And we see Jesus as a faithful witness in the face of false witnesses. But then move forward to chapter 26, verse 69. And there's another now. And we're introduced to Peter in the courtyard last week, fearing little servant girls. And we see Jesus, the faithful witness, and Peter, the unfaithful witness. And here now in chapter 27, verse 1, we have a third now. And we're introduced to Judas in the temple, feeling his guilt. And so you have these contrasts. Jesus, the faithful witness. Peter, the unfaithful witness. And Judas, the false believer. And all during Thursday night of that day, 2,000 years ago, All during the night, the unjust trial had been conducted illegally. Under the cover of darkness, the false witnesses had been paid to falsely accuse our innocent Savior, and they failed. But finally, when the high priest said to Jesus, Swear unto God, are you the Son of God? Then Jesus was the faithful witness, though he knew it would condemn him. You have said it. And as dawn breaks now in chapter 27, verse 1, and the rooster crows, Peter, his number one disciple, denies him three times as an unfaithful witness. But Jesus' enemies got what they wanted and what they needed. And so in 27, we see, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders and the people took counsel or plotted together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now these then result. That triggers a second tragedy, and that is Judas. Notice verses 3 and 5. Then when Judas, his betrayer, 
saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind or felt remorse or was seized with remorse and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And so he threw them da- the coins down into the temple and the saddest tragedy, tragedy of all, he went and he hung himself. So what does God want for us to see? Well, there's two great tragedies in this. The tragedy of hard-hearted rebellion that we see in the chief priests and the tragedy of half-hearted repentance that we see in Judas. But we're going to see that in spite of those tragedies, the gospel triumphs through them. So let's see the first tragedy. Let's take a look at it and see how we can learn from this. The first tragedy is hard-hearted rebellion. The tragedy of hard-hearted rebellion. And here I want you to zero in on the relationship of God's sovereignty and human rebellion. Because here's what we see. Hard hearts plot to overthrow the king. Hard hearts have plotted to overthrow the king and his gospel. Now, look in verse 1. The key phrase in the ESV is took counsel. In other uh, translations, it's conferred together. And in the CSB Bible, it is plotted. And it is repeated twice in this passage. In fact, it bookends the passage. It's in verse 1 and it's in verse 7. In fact, this phrase is used five times in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a fascinating study. If you will take and trace this word, plotted, conferred together, five times. The first time is in Matthew 12, where they plot to destroy Jesus. Why? Because he's a miracle worker. The next time is Matthew 22. Now they plot to trap him in his teaching, his truth, his words. Then the third time is here in 27.1, where they plot to kill Jesus because they want his kingdom. They want to remain rulers instead of him. And then at the end of this passage is the fifth time, or the fourth time they cleanse their blood of the blood money. They cleanse their hands of the blood money, having betrayed him. But what's interesting is the last time is in Matthew 28, they plot together to cover up the resurrection. Now, here's what's fascinating about what I just told you. They are plotting against the gospel, the words and works of Jesus Christ, his miracles and his teaching, who he is as king, and they are plotting to bring about his crucifixion, and they're denying his resurrection. They are working and rebelling and resisting all through this gospel, the very incarnate gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful here this morning, maybe you or I have a hard heart that is resisting the gospel of Jesus Christ. How would we know that? Well, here's the deal. Human rebellion, when it tries to silence the king, results in relational hardness. Relational hardness. If you want to know if you have a hard heart of rebellion towards the Lord, look at how you treat 
and respond to other people. Because in these individuals, in these chief priests, in just these few verses, we see four characteristics of relational hardness. See if you see them in your own life. First of all, they are unjust to the innocent. They're unjust. They know Jesus is innocent. That's why they brought false witnesses. They know Jesus is innocent. That's why they paid Judas to betray them. When Judas comes and says, I have betrayed innocent blood, they don't deny it. They say, what is that to us? Now, here's what I'm asking you. When we have hard hearts, and somebody may hurt us, when we have hard hearts, we deny that they're ever innocent in any other thing. In other words, we can't see in them any goodness, any, anything worthy. And so if someone brings up someone that has hurt us, and they say something nice about them, when you have a hard heart, then you want to you be unjust about that person and say, no, everything they do is wrong. Secondly, they were unmerciful to the guilty. Here's Judas, racked with guilt, and he comes to the priests, the Jewish priests of the people, and he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And these unmerciful dudes simply say, what is that to us? Deal with it yourself. That is an unmerciful response. And when you or I have been hurt by people who have justly sinned against us and justly hurt us, and we refuse to show mercy to them and say, what is that with us? To me, you deal with it. And we fail as sinners who have received mercy from God to show mercy to people who have sinned against us, which is a far lesser offense than us sinning against a holy God. We have a relational hardness in our hearts. Third, they were unfaithful to the Lord. These guys are amazing in this passage. They, are, they know the Bible better than anyone. They go to church more than anyone. They are representatives of the Lord in a privileged way that no one else, and yet in their hearts, they are unfaithful, hypocritical, and farther from God than perhaps anyone. And you know what? We can clean up real good here this morning. And we can look good, and we're here on Pandemic Sunday. And we can think, you know what? I'm doing pretty good, and I'm better. But you know what? If in our hearts, if we're unfaithful and hypocritical, and our hearts are not yielded to the Lord, then attending church, reading the Bible, and all of that is of no use. And then fourth, they were unbelieving, unbelieving in the gospel, as I just showed you. They had the living gospel in the person of Christ, and they plotted at every point to deny his works, deny his miracles, deny his lordship, deny his deity, and they were unbelieving. And what's worse, they attributed what he was doing not to the Holy Spirit, but to Satan himself. Now, this sounds really bad, and it is bad, and it's a tragedy of human rebellion, But what does God want us to learn from this? And here it is, number two. God's gracious sovereignty surrounds our tragedies. God's gracious sovereignty surrounds our tragedies. And why do I say that? Well, for look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Jesus, they they, uh, took counsel to put him to death. And look at verse 2. They bound him, led him, and delivered him. 
And do you realize, no less than two times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said, this is exactly what they're going to do to me. In other words, they're not in charge. God is in charge. Jesus said, this is what must happen. And he literally said, they will do this, they will do this, and they will do this. And in verse 2, they are doing this, and they are doing this, and they are doing this. Why? Because God's sovereignty surrounds our tragedy. But how does this passage end? There's a lot there at the end, but I just want you to see 9 and 10. Notice, after all this is these two tragedies take place of condemning Jesus with human rebellion and the suicide of Judas with a half-hearted repentance, then was fulfilled. And then notice verse 10, how it ends. As the Lord directed. Listen, this is a sovereignty sandwich. And I don't know what tragedy you're going through, but you have a sovereignty sandwich because God's sovereignty surrounds this pandemic It surrounds whatever you're going through. And the gospel will triumph through your tragedies because God is sovereign. Can I get a response? All right. Social distancing doesn't mean you can't respond. So let's respond. Okay. That's good news. Now, what does Matthew want us to learn from this? Is that God's gracious sovereignty was surrounding this great tragedy of human rebellion. Nobody was getting away with anything. These chief priests weren't getting away. And guess what? Death is not an escape from a sovereign God. In fact, death ushers you into his presence. Now, because God's gracious sovereignty surrounds our tragedies, we can be assured, thirdly, hard-hearted rebellion will be defeated. Hard-hearted rebellion will be defeated. And that's just not about other people's hard hearts. It's about my hard heart. It's about your hard heart. And so, just like in the life of Joseph, who was a type of Christ, we we can say about this tragedy of hard-hearted rebellion, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God minute for good, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That was in a physical famine. Now multiply that by a million for spiritual life. God meant that tragedy of Christ being condemned for good. Now, how can hard hearts escape such divine judgment? Well, It's not by doing what Judas did. Here's the second tragedy. The tragedy of half-hearted repentance. The tragedy of half-hearted repentance. You see, unlike the hard-hearted priests, Judas tried to do something about his sin. He tried to deal with the sin of his heart, but he did it the wrong way with half-hearted repentance. So the first thing I want you to see about this very complex man and this very complex situation in this passage is this. Judas is consumed with regret due to the outcome of his sin. And in your notes, you may want to circle that word outcome because that's the key. That's the key. What is the key to understanding Judas's heart? And let me tell you, authors 
and liberals and unbelievers and skeptics and and agnostics have spilled a lot of ink on trying to understand Judas. But here, here, I'll tell you how to understand the state of his heart. He was not repenting of his sinfulness, of his sin against Jesus. He was regretting the outcome and the consequences of his sin. And from a young age, we've learned the difference, haven't we? You know, man, I sinned and I enjoyed it. Now the consequences come. I don't like that. I feel very sorry about my consequences. Yeah, but what about your heart sin? Parents, there's your key for parenting. It is so easy to deal with the consequences and to see regret about consequences. But we need the grace of God and the gospel to get to the heart of the matter. Are you really broken over your sin? And parents, don't stress, you can't really do that. Only the gospel can do that. Only God can do that. But I digress. So here, consider these three facts. Consider these three facts. And it, it, it will help you with your own half-hearted repentance and perhaps even that of your children. Here it goes. Consider three pa- facts about Judas's response to his sin of betrayal. First of all, Judas realizes the outcome of his sin finally. Finally. You see, he's not broken about lying to Jesus' face at the Lord's Supper. He's not broken about giving the kiss of betrayal, the kiss of a friend. He's not broken about that. He's not broken about any of it until he finally sees the consequences. And the text says when he saw that Jesus was condemned, then he was filled with regret. The the New American Standard says this, Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse, or full of remorse, or seized with remorse. Those are good translations and very accurate ones. Only after it's too late does he regret his sinful betrayal. Only once it is a done deal that Jesus will die. Now, there's a lot of uh, speculation. About Jesus, about Judas, what did he expect to happen? You know, you're like, uh, duh, you're, you're betraying him. What did he expect? And there's all sorts of ink spilled about what were his motivations. And vast majority of all of that is speculation. Because the Gospels are clear. His motive was he had a greedy heart. And he was willing to betray Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver. And you say, yeah, but it has to be more than that. No, sin is that stupid. And we're that stupid when we sin and think that there won't be consequences. You see, we're the same way. We pursue sin and we think, oh, it's going to be pleasurable. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fulfilling. I did it once and God didn't strike me dead. I did it again and nothing seemed to change. But listen, it is pleasurable. I won't lie to you and God doesn't lie to you. It will be pleasurable for a moment. It may be pleasurable for a month. It may be pleasurable even for years. But every one of us, will come to that moment like Judas did when one day the full weight of our sins fall upon us and we regret the consequences but not the offense to a holy God. And what happens? Number two, 
Judas regrets the outcome of his sin emotionally. So he finally re, re, realizes the consequences, finally, too late. And then he regrets the outcome of his sin emotionally. Why? Because regret is not repentance. Now, Matthew used a very interesting word here for this remorse, this change of mind. And it's a word that's not typically used for repentance. And yet, in Matthew, earlier, he uses it for true repentance. So which is it? Did he really repent or not? Just the word is not enough to tell us. So how do you know? What's the difference between regret and repentance? Half-hearted repentance and whole-hearted. Well, here's, the, here's what you need to know. Feelings are not the evidence of true repentance. Feelings are not the evidence of true repentance. The evidence of true repentance is the fruit of a changed life. So you can have feelings, but no fruit. And sometimes you can have fruit with not a lot of emotional display. And so it's not about the feelings that he felt. It's about what's really going on into his heart. Feelings in the fruit of a changed life. Now we see this played out. Number three, when Judas reverses the outcome of his sin hopelessly, he tries to reverse the outcome of his sin. And he does so hopelessly. And he does three things. He tries to reverse the outcome, but it won't work. And so he tries by trying harder and by doing better. He's going back to the religious system. Maybe if I just try harder and do better, but it doesn't reverse your sin. He tries to reverse the outcome by returning the money, but it doesn't work. Good works don't cancel your sin. And he tries it by atoning for his own sin, by taking his life, but it won't work. Ending your life doesn't pay for your sin. So why can't Judas reverse the outcome and overcome his regret? It's because half-hearted repentance fails to pay our sin debt. Half-hearted repentance fails to pay our sin debt. And here's Here's four things we can learn. Let's see, how many do I have here? Four, yeah. Let's look at it. First of all, I mean, this is a complex stuff. He's doing, there's a lot of things going on here. But I just want you to know, none of them are working. Okay, feeling emotion is not sufficient. Feeling emotion is not sufficient. He had a worldly sorrow, but he didn't have a godly sorrow. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 11. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And that's what, that's what Judas got. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. And in verse 11, he, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, I can see godly sorrow because I can see the fruit in a changed life, okay? So, feeling emotion won't pay for your sins. Number two, taking action is not sufficient 
to pay for your sins. He tried to make amends. He's literally reversing. He went there to betray. Now he's going there to confess. He went there to get paid. Now he's going back there to give the money back. He's trying to reverse his sin by taking action, but trying harder, doing better, being better, getting religious, going to church, reading the Bible for the means of atoning for your sin is not sufficient. Number three, making confession is not sufficient. If you just look at what Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Stop for a moment and think about those words. Did Judas confess that he had sinned? Yeah, I have sinned. Did he specifically confess his sin? Yes, by betraying innocent blood. Did Judas sincerely confess his sin? I would even say, yes, he did. He is gripped and seized by remorse. But notice three things. Sometimes what's most important is not what's said, but what's not said. So here's the reality. Who did he confess to? Other people, not to God. He didn't say, oh, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. No, he's going to a religious system. He's going to sinners that are just as hard-hearted as he is. Who did he not confess to? He didn't confess to God. And who does he not mention in his confession? He does not mention Jesus. He doesn't seek to rescue Jesus. He does, he's not concerned about his sin and his, his potential Savior He's concerned about what he's feeling and trying to release guilt. And then number four, because none of these things worked, he is choosing self-condemnation is not sufficient. Self-condemnation is not sufficient. You see, Judas is utterly hopeless, hopeless. And his final attempt to deal with his guilt and atone for his sin is the most tragic of all. He chooses self-condemnation by taking his own life. And let me just say, listen to me, listen to me. Our sacrifices, no matter how great, even the ultimate sacrifice of taking our life is not sufficient to atone for your sin. There was a lady that, long, long time ago, so don't try to figure it out, uh, who went to our church and then uh, left and had problems and a lot of problems in her family and a lot of problems in her marriage, and, and, and the consequences began to pile up and the weight of her sin began to wear her down. And I'll never forget early on when I was here uh, on staff, she came in and she wanted to clean the church. Now, let me tell you, Pastors love people that want to clean the church. But it was so evident it was for the wrong reasons. And so for about a week, maybe two weeks, I don't know how long it was, but it wasn't long. She cleaned like nobody, like you've never seen anybody clean. And then she faded away and left. Why? Because you can't atone for your sins. You can't make up for your sins, no matter how you sacrifice and no matter what you do. So let me stop here just for a moment, and I can't get off on this, but it's so important because suicide is rampant. It's rampant in our society. 
And there are many reasons why people commit suicide. Only two are mentioned in the Bible, and neither one of them are exemplary, uh, certainly, uh, and, and definitely Judas is not a believer. But that doesn't mean that suicide is the unpardonable sin. And let me tell you, I know the weight of it. It's a heavy weight. Until you've been touched by it and have a friend that, that commits suicide, you just don't know. And they don't realize, and many of them are not in a position emotionally and mentally to realize the devastating guilt they leave behind. It is not the answer. It is not the answer. But I want to be clear. Suicide did not condemn Judas, but it did seal his destiny because he died in his sins. Suicide does not condemn you to hell. What condemns you to hell are your sins. But if you take your life or your life is taken before you have repented wholeheartedly, then your destiny is sealed. You know, in a very real sense, Judas's suicide reveals his true heart condition. He was a thief at heart. And you know what he did in committing suicide? He took what was not his to take, his life. He was a rebel at heart. And in taking his life, he stood in the position and took the authority of God that is only God's to take a life. And he had half-hearted repentance. And because he had not fully repented, he doomed his destiny. Because after death, we are appointed once to die, and after this, the judgment. But listen to this. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin but it is sin. Therefore, it's never, never God's will for people created in his image. And that is every single person. So why couldn't Judas reverse his outcome? Here's why. Half-hearted repentance will lead to damnation. Half-hearted repentance will lead to damnation in the end. Now, I've given you a chart in your bulletin. There's these beautiful contrasts between Peter and his wholehearted repentance and Judas and his half-hearted repentance. But all I want to say is this. The chief priests, they knew they had sinned and they turned zero degrees. They just stayed on it. Judas knew he had sinned and he turned 90 degrees with half-hearted repentance. But when Peter was confronted with his sin and his guilt, he turned 180 degrees back to Jesus, and he never looked back. And he had the fruit of a persevering, changed life. And that's what God is calling us to do. And so when we think about Peter and Judas, I just, I, I just I will, I, let me say this. When you look at Peter, remember how far a true believer can fall. And when you look at Judas, remember how high a false believer can rise. And then ask God to search your heart to discern which you are. So you say, there's the two tragedies. Hard-hearted rebellion, 
half-hearted repentance. Where's the triumph in this? Number three, the triumph of the gospel changes hearts. The triumph of the gospel to change hearts. And just let me give you two facts. And take these with us in the weeks to come into the unknown. Number one, the gospel was accomplished through these tragedies. The gospel was accomplished. Isn't that interesting? That no matter how tragic this was, it was all a part of God's gracious plan to fulfill the good news that hard-hearted sinners and half-hearted repenters can be truly saved if they will receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, number two, the gospel applied will deliver you. The gospel's been accomplished, but I leave you today with this question. Has it been applied to your heart? It's been accomplished in God's grace, but has it been applied to your heart? And you say, well, how would I know if it's been applied? Well, here's how God applies the gospel. Three things. One, repentance towards God with your whole heart. Turn away, not just from the consequences of your sin, but turn away from the very offense of your sin and turn wholeheartedly back to God. And two... Do so to put your faith in Christ alone with a humbled heart. Don't put your faith in you reversing your sin. Don't put your faith in atoning for your own sin. There's no emotion great enough. There's no action you can take that's sufficient. There's nothing you can do. Not even taking your life will, will change your, 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 your status with God. And then number three, perseverance in following Christ with a new heart. Perseverance in following Christ with a new heart. You know what's tragic about Judas? He was one of the 12. Do you know this guy was empowered to perform miracles? He was empowered to preach the gospel? He, other than James, John, and Peter, he was as close to the person of the incarnate Son of God as anyone. And he had all of that, and he had been chosen and appointed, and he walked away from it. He didn't persevere. He wasn't a true believer. You see, if you made a decision in the past, or you know of people who've made decisions in the past, and yet they're living with a hard heart and half-hearted repentance, there's no assurance of salvation in that. Because you have to have wholehearted repentance that fully trusts with a humble heart that then perseveres because when God saves us, He gives us a new heart. He not only forgives our sins, and sometimes we preach a half a gospel, and therefore we get half-hearted repentance. But the whole gospel is forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives you a new heart. And when you have a new heart, God enables you to keep going. Now, are you sinless? No, but you sin less. Are you perfect? No, but you humble and you have a lifestyle of repentance to where you say, man, 
I sinned, and I sinned in ways that I never thought I would sin, but I sinned, and I wholeheartedly confess it, and I turn back to you, Jesus, for complete forgiveness. And you just keep repenting and trusting and repenting and persevering. That's the good news of the gospel. And so I end with this. No heart is so hard that the gospel can't soften it. Think of Saul of Tarsus. You talk about a hard-hearted terrorist. And God softened that man's heart. And you couldn't see it on the outside. But then the gospel broke through. And then listen to this. No heart is so hopeless that the gospel cannot save it. Think of the Philippian jailer who all hope was lost. And he was about to take his own life. And Paul said, stop, stop. It's not that hopeless. You don't have to take your life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So we end today, I want to end on this odd Sunday with a very unknown future, with a quote by Pastor Kevin DeYoung, which says this, Our biggest concern in life is not sickness. It's sin. By all means, let's do all we can to limit the spread of physical disease. And we've shown you how we're trying to do that at LifeBridge. But DeYoung says, our precautions against vice should be even more than our precautions against a virus. And so, beloved, I, I, I cry out to you. The gospel can triumph through your personal and these global tragedies. But you must repent of your sin and run to Jesus to receive a new heart. And he offers it to you today. So with our heads bowed, with our heads bowed and and hopefully our hearts have been humbled as our musicians come to play, I want you to think about this and I want you to respond to it. Jesus is pleading interceding, I am urging you to not put off. If there's sin in your life and you're harboring guilt and you're burdened and you're contemplating taking your life or you're contemplating giving up, turn to Jesus today and he can give you a new heart. And maybe he's already given you that heart and you are fighting, fighting the conviction of the Spirit then surrender, surrender, yield to him. For he can rule your life far better than you could ever imagine. So as they play, let's receive and apply the gospel to our hearts.